I think uh, I think leaning in is is the ideal <laughs> podcast interview. <laughs> as far as the eyes, though, if I look at you, will it look normal on a camera? Yeah. So so like yeah, it's it's going to just be a side angle of you. So okay. like that's it's going to be the whole time. It's just going to be the side angle. So if I keep my I, head up like this and look over the TV. I'm good, right? Oh yeah, yeah, like yeah. This. Like looking at this right now, it looks good. Okay. Um, and in fact, like I just hit the uh, recording button, and I always like to kind of start them off with just like a little intro of like, "Hey, we're just kind of chatting it up before doing the introduction." So if you're good to go, I'm good to go, and we'll jump right in. Yeah, I, I feel uh, better than usual. <laughs> I was thinking about the about football this afternoon and trying to get some Quattro's pizza. There you go. Oh, now now you're just playing to the crowd. Uh, hey, everyone, and uh, welcome to WTF Carbondale, the podcast where we talk to interesting people about their interesting lives, and uh, we tie it all back to Carbondale somehow, whether they're folks that have been through here, are from here, uh, have come back here, any sort of just like Carbondale-related folks. And uh, exciting. I uh, got a new graphic in the upper left-hand corner here. Same logo, but now I've added a little bit on the uh, places where you can subscribe to the podcast listen to it uh you know get connected with it got the anchor uh got the anchor fm uh link got the youtube url and have the just at wtf carbondale because that's where it's at on pretty much all platforms that are uh not banned in the u.s god um my guest today is Joe Cervantes, am I pronouncing that correctly? You are, yeah. Is it? Does it? It needs the pronunciation. Cervantes. Yeah, no. I, I don't know if you have to do all that. Yeah, but no, yeah, yeah, probably a little bit too much. You're right. Uh, <laughs> it's, it's Cervantes is fine. Yeah, thanks. So how'd you uh, how'd you get to Carbondale, Joe? Uh, so I came down in uh, in 1996, uh, and I came down like a lot of people do uh, to go to school. Um, so I grew up in the in Chicagoland area, uh, and when the time was right, I uh, I got down into Carbondale and never left. So. <laughs> the uh, the the first person that I had on an, on on the show uh, all of earlier this week, the uh, was like Carbondale's like a black hole, and I was like, yep, that's it. I mean, it's just got the gravitational pull once you're in. Well, I always tell people I, I could afford to get down here, but once I graduated college, I couldn't afford to get back. So. <laughs> Luckily, the cost of living is a little bit more manageable in this, yeah, in this space. So yeah. you now you uh, you went to law school with like oh so you were you were in law school with Alex Inyard, uh, right? Or like yes. somehow some way, yes. Like I know somehow you bumped into Pat Kelly through all of your. Uh, trials and tribulations on, on SIU campus. So, like, you were you were undergrad, and then your your law. What is it? JD. What what do you what do you call? Right. Yeah. So I, I did I did undergrad in at SIU, and and yeah, I do know uh, Pat from from undergrad. But uh, I started grad school, uh, left for the military for a while, uh, in, enlisted here out of Carbondale, but um, ended up uh, had no idea how an infantry marine would end up in law school, but I did, uh, <laughs> and uh, they let me. But I did go to school with Alex Enyard, um, two, uh, two, two people from two different worlds, and I uh, actually uh, get along with Alex very well and became friends in law school. Nice. So, yeah. Nice. So now he still, he still dabbles in Carbondale life from time to time, but we're trying to just keep him in the Metro East. Just keep you know, him I, think he, I think he's torn between his, his, his real roots, which, are, which is to just to be kind of a hellraiser, uh, and, and civilian life over in uh, the Metro East area. Uh, but we still collaborate on things. You know, um, as different as we can be at times, uh, we have a passion for um, finding points of friction in the system. And uh, that's, that's my political way of saying, you know, finding some serious problems in, yeah. in the system, the unfair things, and and really going after them. So we've collaborated a few times, but uh, yeah, I met him, and I'm glad I did. So. You know, I, I I like that. I as I've as I've kind of grown into my understanding of who I am as a person, I, I've I've told people I'm like I'm interested in like tearing down the system from the inside, right? Like what's broken and what needs fixed. But I like, I kind of like your phrasing of it's a little bit softer, right? Finding those friction points yeah. that just need addressed and kind of moving it from there. And that's, that's part of why I wanted to have you on the show. Uh, just the, the one that I did a couple days ago uh, with JP, the, you know, I was like, listen, I don't just want to have people that I only see eye to eye with on the show 
and I want to have people that like we have differences of opinion, but we have similarities of opinion on things and like get them in here to talk. And so you being a Republican running for state's attorney kind of fit the bill in terms of somebody that's not in the same world as I am, but somebody that I can still talk to and find common ground with. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I, I think that uh, maybe we do a poor job of that when we get impassioned about things. And uh, I think that we really can, uh, well, let me put it this way. I, I realized exactly what you just said while I've been campaigning over the last uh, maybe year and a half or two years, uh, that most of us, you know, I probably heard politicians say it all the time. We have a lot more similarities than we have differences. And it's mm -hmm. really true. Like I've never heard anyone disagree with me that we should put our resources towards, you know, juvenile uh, delinquency and, and, and the juvenile courts. Uh, I've never heard anybody disagree that they want safe neighborhoods. You know, nobody is like, well, that's not my platform. <laughs> you know, um, no, no one disagrees that if someone commits a crime with a weapon that they should pay the, the penalty and we should get them out of the community. Mm -hmm. um, you know, a lot of the, the things that we disagree on are just these little, you know, these little sticking points. And a lot of times they have nothing to do with the position I'm running with, yeah. uh, running for. So, uh, you know, it, it, this has been a, um, a wake-up call for me. And it goes to show you that you can, uh, you can, you can go to undergrad and you can get degrees and go to law school and do all kinds of things. Um, but, you, you know, the process of learning never stops because now I'm, I'm learning even more uh, as, a, uh, as someone campaigning for an office than I had probably ever before. So. Yeah. I mean, it'll, uh, <laughs> it'll open your eyes, right? You always think, like, you know something. But, I mean, that's kind of the, the best approach anymore these days is be like, I don't know a damn thing. Like. I, I start knowing less, I feel like, every day. <laughs> so, but, but I'm getting better with coping with that, I think, is the, the thing. So, no. well, that's yeah. good. That's good. What, uh, oh, I had, like, a very specific question that, like, bumped up in my head and the AC unit kicked on, and now I'm like, ah, oh, it's all, it's all, <laughs> it's all lost. So, uh, you know, what, what, I mean, it, was it really just, you know, couldn't leave. I'm, I'm here. Whatever. Let's go for it. I mean, what what kept you in in this area? So uh, first off, you know, I I, uh, I escaped from Chicago. I okay. didn't just wake up one day and say, Mom and Dad, I'm going to go to college now. And they they drove me down and wished me luck and gave me my my uh, I don't know, my savings uh, trust fund or whatever. Um, I, I had a rough time in Chicago. I lost my parents when I was younger. My dad was my only parent, lost him uh, when I was uh, 10 years old and kind of got kicked in, uh, kicked around a little bit in Chicago. Um, you know, couch surf from family member to family member, uh, involved in the system, got in trouble a little bit. I changed high schools so many times, yeah. uh, and um, or junior highs too. I mean, I, I changed schools a lot, and I tried college, and I didn't have the skills. I well, I, I should say, eventually, I dropped out of high school. Uh, it will. I just didn't have the the uh, infrastructure around me to stay in school. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, I worked a lot. Don't get me wrong, but I tried college. I knew that I needed college. Uh, my father, I guess, had raised me. I'd been with him long enough for him to make me realize that I needed to better myself in some way, shape, or form. So I always tried school, but I, I always dropped out. I tried community colleges. I tried different schools, and I realized that the more I I kept hanging around the same people that I've always hung around. Um, the more failures I was going to have, I was going to keep having the same, making the same mistakes and the same failures over and over again. Uh, and so I got in my car and, and drove as far as I could uh, with still getting in-state tuition. <laughs> <laughs> so, and that was Carbondale. And, and you know, um, there's always a group for you in Carbondale. Yeah. It, it, it absolutely, while Chicago just kicked me in the mouth while I was down, uh, Carbondale just kind of opened its arms to me. And, uh, and I, I, I kept staying in school and met probably some of my best friends I've ever had in undergrad, uh, which I didn't have before. These are friends that were genuine, um, that uh, I had a lot of things in common with that weren't going to bring me down with them. Uh, and you stay around you know, places that are going to be beneficial to you. So I, I never left. Um, but when I did, it was because I enlisted in the military from down here. So it was those, uh, if you, I don't know if you remember those, those, there was like two or three houses with the white porches on them, mm -hmm. right downtown Carbondale, the recruiting offices, the old ones, uh -huh. um, not too far from Harbaugh's. And I remember sitting on the porch there and enlisting and just thinking, you know, Lord, what have I done? You know, <laughs> um, but but yeah, that's that's I didn't leave. And then I enlisted from there. And once you enlist, that's your home of record. 
you know. So okay. if, something, if something happens to you, they ship they ship you home to Carbondale if that's you know that's where you enlisted from. So <laughs> wow. So. <laughs> one way or the other <laughs> when uncle sam says this is your home <laughs> this is now your home right yeah and i, and I felt I, I i really liked it you know it was a, the small town feel especially coming from chicago you know mm-hmm. um i i loved sitting at mary lou's i i loved uh the, the small town feel uh, everybody knew everybody uh and and i don't have to explain that to the people that are that are watching the podcast they all yeah. understand that but uh so yeah it became my home and then i met uh i met a girl down here we had a started having a family so uh the rest is history as they say so how okay so that that, that makes me interested because you were like well do you remember this and it's like i i i remember carbonell in a certain way because i'm i'm 31 right so i remember my chunk uh, how how old are you, Joe? <laughs> I'm 45. Okay, that's not bad. That's not, like I didn't, dude. I like you could you could be your mid 30s. You could be your mid 40s. You could well, be your mid 50s. In that you case, just have a very flexible look. In, in that case, I'm 35. There you go. So. <laughs> Run with it, man. All all day and forever. So how uh, so you so like go so get here college military was it like military and college at the same time or like how does that how does well you know i i started in the marine reserves uh and i i figured i would get uh, a little bit of extra help every month uh living you know they give you a little bit of uh, um, a stipend i think when you're in the reserves so mm-hmm. i joined in 97 i went to boot camp in the summertime came back and and kept going through school um i was looking for anything that would help me get through school because i just i, I was never a good student wasn't a good student ever yeah. uh i i got a lot better when, uh, you know, when, after I got out of the military. Um, but uh, after 9-11, uh, that I was kind of the right age mm-hmm. um, to, to go and, and do what I had to do. And um, I think me and a lot of friends kind of signed up full time. And I was looking for um, a job at the time because I had just graduated school. Yeah. And the Marines were just like, uh, I was already good at, at that, and I figured that I could go and do that. So that, that's what I did. Um, I got on the first uh, plane that I could overseas. So Oof. That's commendable actions. I actually enlisted in the Marine Corps, and they gave me an administrative position. And when I got after 9-11, um, I got uh, into the infantry. Uh-huh. And so, uh, that was, uh, that was a bit of a change, but, um, served overseas as an infantry, uh, squad leader, as a platoon sergeant, as an infantry leader, and as an infantry, uh, uh company gunnery sergeant. So I uh, got a chance to go overseas several times. That's so. a, it's an interesting, like crossover, like going from the administrative role to a combat role. Right. And then like, right. okay, cool. Now I have a like some serious sets of skills that may apply to, I don't know, being a lawyer. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So there's not too many of us that, uh, that were in the Marine Corps infantry and then end up being an attorney. Right. Um, so that was an interesting transition in itself. Um, I, uh, I was recruited out of the Marine Corps to be a, uh, a NATO weapons advisor. So I would go to other countries and teach them how to, uh, uh, how to operate like American forces do, okay. you know, use use the same procedures and and such that we use, and uh, it was just as dangerous, if not more dangerous, than being in the infantry. Uh, and I w- we were having our first boy, um, our first child, mm-hmm. and uh, I think I was done with getting shot at for a while. <laughs> uh, and I, I I looked at you know once again every time I was in trouble you know in my adult life I looked at the university so wasn't exactly sure what I was going to do with my degree what I was going to do with my background as a as a, a marine infantry person if you go, you know if you put in what job you qualify for uh, they would put like security or police officer uh, and so I was looking into that but um, I, I, I don't know why they let me into law school I just don't know why <laughs> I remember writing a letter and saying I'm gonna take the LSAT um, on my vacation from Afghanistan. I was gonna come home from Afghanistan, take my LSAT and then go back. And I remember writing a letter saying that, I know that my GPA wasn't fantastic (laughs) in college. And I know that I dropped out of high school and I have a GED, uh, but if you let me into law school, I guarantee you I will make the law school proud. That's nice. Did it, so it worked. I, I guess it worked. I mean, <laughs> I still, you know, I still go in my office every morning and look at my my law degree, and I'm like, still there, you know, it's <laughs> making sure that I'm still that it happened. But it, it's odd to to think, well, you know, when you're you're 17 or 16 and you're thinking, yeah, school's not my thing, 
you know, and then end up being an attorney one day. It's it's hot. Because so. being an attorney is kind of just like being in school all the time. Like all you do is just read and write and then argue a little and then read and write and argue a little. Well, or what does being a lawyer entail? <laughs> if you're active, it means that uh, you are constantly learning what you don't know, yeah. like all the time, because there's always problems that come up and you don't know the answers to them. You know, uh, sometimes you do. And some attorneys just do the same thing over and over again, and they get really good at it. I'm a general practice attorney. I've been a prosecutor. Uh, I'm a defense attorney now. Um, I do municipal law, so I advise cities um, and city councils on, on legal matters. Um, I've done a number of uh, federal and state uh, civil cases. Um, I've uh, defended people against administrative agencies like the EPA, mm -hmm. um, the uh, Department of Housing and Urban Development, um, and, uh, and, and DCFS. Uh, so what I've done in the last so many years since I've been out of law school um, is unique in that I've done a lot of it, a lot of volume, um, but I've done a variety. And one thing that's common in all those different types of law is that you're always questioning witnesses, you're always cross-examining witnesses, and you're always trying to get the facts into evidence. So it doesn't matter whether it's criminal or civil. Um, I always pride myself on being able to do that and be able to prove my point and paint a picture. But ultimately, being an attorney is not just about reading and, 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 and doing what you were saying. It's, it's really, uh, for some reason, uh, it's very similar to being in the, in the Marines. <laughs> and people laugh and uh, when I say that and they say, well, you know, did you practice law in the Marines? No, I, I was actually a grunt. You know, I, I had a weapon and I, I, that, that was my job. But what's unique about Marines is that we pride ourselves on standing in between, I wouldn't say just Marines, uh, to the military. We kind of had have that... Um, uh, that sheepdog mentality of protecting other people, of standing up for people who can't stand up for themselves. And that's often what we do as an attorney, not all attorneys, but in my job, um, people call my law firm and they call me when there's nobody else to help them, mm -hmm. when they have anxiety, when maybe they're going through the worst thing in their life, whether it be a divorce or they're arrested uh, or uh, they've been discriminated against. Uh, and they call me, and these are serious problems, and I get I get a chance to be the one that they call for that. So it's a very similar feeling, like you know, I got you, you know, <laughs> nobody else got you, I got you, yeah. you know. So calm down, relax. Here's my number. If something comes up, let me know. Um, and I feel good about it. I get that same kind of feeling, that same kind of pride. So that's a that's a lot to shoulder. It can be, but. <laughs> You know, it's a stressful job. It's not the most stressful job. I mean, there's there's other jobs that are stressful, but it is because you have your law license on one side, and mm -hmm. um, you're always trying to keep up with current events, and you're always trying to, you know, you, and when you have a law license, you have to bring money in as a defense attorney. Um, but I think as a prosecutor, I worked for years as a prosecutor. I worked um, in Williamson County and in Saline County um, for as an assistant state's attorney, uh, and I think that's really when I decided um, what I was going to do for my my career. Mm -hmm. uh, it's funny that uh, you can be, you know, 30-something years old and say, you know what I'm going to do? Uh, I'm going to be an attorney, and I, I want to be a state's attorney one day. So <laughs> it's, it's uh, you know, I, I probably decided I was going to do that later on in life, and that's when I decided what I was going to do when I was a prosecutor. Right. So. What, so what's, like, kind of that difference in feeling between being in your own private practice versus like you've been in state's attorney's offices and like just, d you know, done the, done the grind on the salaried side of things. Like I would, there, there's so much to that. Uh, I would say to any attorney who wants to do either of those things to try the other side out, it makes you a better attorney. Um, just as a prosecutor alone, when I first started, uh, being an assistant state's attorney, I took the moral high ground on everything, and I did exactly what everybody had done before me. Mm -hmm. um, but because of my history and my past, I started realizing that maybe some of the things that we've always done are not the best. Yeah. Um, and I don't know where that comes from, maybe just from my history, maybe um, from uh, from being a leader in the Marines and trying to do things a little bit better, a little bit more perfect than the day before. Mm -hmm. um, but I definitely realized there's a better way to do things. Um, I got my experience there, but I realized a lot of, as we said before, points of friction in a system that can be changed. But it is a machine, make no mistake. Yeah. And everybody will continuously do the same thing they did yesterday over and over again. And it's a machine that people rate its efficiency based on how quick 
an expedient a system is. And I say that with all seriousness. So when I say, yeah. well, well, how's the juvenile docket in such and such county? Oh, it's great. You know, we get in, we get out. Um, the dockets are, are a little light right now, and that's fine. We can get continuances when we need them. Um, you know, all the workers are great to work with. You know, th- this is how we rate our system. In and out is not the feeling that I want to have when we're talking about, like, young people going through the court system for the first couple of times. Like, that's – like, like, I mean, it sounds like a fast food restaurant, what you just pitched. Be like, yeah, yeah, we're in, we're out, we're on it. Like, uh, lunch in 15 minutes or it's, less, or it's free. It's like – it's it's um it, it's getting sucked into the system, and and then you, pretty soon you become one of the parts in that system, and you just keep working it over and over again, um and uh, and and whenever you toss something in there, everybody just kind of looks at you and say, well, this is gonna this is gonna take some time, um, and not in a hateful way, or yeah. they just kind of don't know that that we're doing it like that, and so every once in a while we have to file things in court to wake people up, um but. I knew that I was going to try some some private defense work, and I did that. And it changes your perspective on everything. It changes your perspective on everything, on the entire system when you defend somebody versus when you're prosecuting. When you're prosecuting, you're only seeing them from uh, from a police report point of view. Yeah. And the defense attorney's job is to paint the picture of that person for you. The problem is, is that public defenders are always outnumbered. Right. Um, so uh, that, that's that's a whole nother problem I could talk for hours on. I mean, we, we, we got plenty of time. Man. Well, the internet. Uh, it's it, like I always it, tell people <laughs> it's, it's a serious problem when you have when you have nine or ten prosecutors and four public defenders. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, what are we saying about the system when we're not when we're not given equal time to defense as we are to prosecution? Um, that's a problem. Uh, in in most counties uh, across the country, I think that's something that needs to be reformed eventually. Um, because as a prosecutor, I only I don't sit down and talk to the defendant. You know, I I only know what the defense attorney tells me. Um, and, and if you don't have that public defender or that defense attorney that has time to paint that picture for you about who this individual is, then you have no other choice but to treat that person as a case number as opposed to a name and a person. Um, as a defense attorney, you know, I get to sit in my law office, uh, you know, maybe with my other attorneys and listen to somebody talk about how their kid's a good kid and they need another opportunity, and uh, they, this is where they went wrong. And, and all of the redeeming qualifications or, or qualities of that person, you hear that, but as a prosecutor, you don't hear that. And so the fight is not really just in the, in the, in the legal battles. The fight becomes trying to find places where you can get that information into the prosecutor, whether it be in a preliminary hearing or in a, a letter to the prosecutor or in a, a motion hearing or even at trial. Um, but your job is to paint the most colorful, the most bright picture of that defendant as possible. And you lack uh, being able to see that a lot of times as a prosecutor. Uh, so it changes your perspective on the, the system, having been a prosecutor and having been a defense attorney. Um, at the same time, if I was only a defense attorney, I think I would have problems understanding the commitment and um, the responsibility you have to victims. Mm-hmm. Because you have responsibilities to victims, you have responsibilities to their families. As a prosecutor, I've had to sit in in, uh, in rooms and talk to people who have lost loved ones because of a crime. Um, and you have to sit and tell them maybe that, uh, you know, this, this is going to be a long prosecution or maybe sometimes that you can't prosecute this case. Yeah. Um, and you remember that as a defense attorney. And as a, you know, uh, as a prosecutor, you know, again, I hope to remember what it's like to be on that defense side and talking to the families. And, uh, and so I think it's so important now that I've done both to have the experience on both sides. Um, I just think it's more valuable to the community. Uh, and it's more valuable for all the participants in the courtroom. Um, and, and, uh, I think going forward, uh, I wouldn't have changed that path at all. So... It, it just it who it's it's it sounds like a game of who gets the humanity right who who gets who gets to be human you know who gets to be more human than than not right caring for both victims and those who perpetrate crimes but understanding that many of the people who perpetrate crimes are they themselves victims of a system or society in a particular way yeah. and 
God, that's a that's a real interesting juxtaposition, man. Yeah, that's we put like... we put walls up so much because of the procedures that are necessary in a lot of cases. Um, you know, I was working a juvenile docket. I was a juvenile prosecutor in Saline County, and I remember um, we have a lot of attorneys in the courtroom. We have an attorney for you know the each child. We have an attorney for the parents for each parent. We have an attorney. You know, so it's hard to to. The, for the prosecutor to go and actually talk to the kids. Yeah, this just doesn't happen. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I needed so much more information while I was, I was getting sometimes about what's going on. Um, and I remember asking uh, a defense attorney down there who I'm still friends with, close friends with, um, hey, can I talk to your, can I talk to the kid? Are you okay with that? Yeah. And she's like, um, "That's I don't know if that's ever happened, but you can if you want to and I was like I promise whatever he tells me when we talk I won't use against him okay yeah. I just want to talk to him and uh, so it was given an opportunity to sit kneecap to kneecap with him uh, and ask him what was going on and he thought his life was so bad you know the mean streets of Harrisburg um, I'm like you know it, it can be rough and I don't yeah, sorry, you know, you I, didn't know. Mean, I didn't mean to downplay that, that wasn't... I, I, I know but I, I was saying in a, in a way where you know there's worse places Yeah, you know yeah. you, you have have and, and uh, some kids they have both parents at home, yeah. and and uh, you have to try to figure out what it, what's going through their head um, that they think that their life is so bad that they can't that, that they can't be redeemed that they can't fix what what's broken. Um, the truth of the matter is they can, and uh, sometimes I have to be able to to be a part of that conversation and not leave it for two or three or four attorneys to to uh, to tell me that. Um, but I realize that our juvenile system can change, and yeah. it needs to be more of a problem-solving court than uh, adversarial. And if we make it problem-solving, then uh, I think um, we can lower the recidivism rate with kids and not have to see them when they're adults. And I think that's so important. In fact, that's probably the premise of my entire platform, um, is to, to make sure that we're taking care of crime the way we need to, but at the same time, we're reducing it by making sure our kids don't get involved in it in the first place. Well, in, so it's interesting that you bring that up, because, I mean, in terms of just a, a value to society on you know, changing people's lives so that there's not a continuation of, you know, a costly system of law enforcement that sees money go away from fixing the problem and into, you know, uh, penalizing the the problem. And it's like, what, what can, I mean, in, in your, in your mind, I mean, if you're talking about having served and, and municipalities and counties and whatever, and in, you know, government law, having pursued, you know, criminal law activity on both sides of it. Like, what do you see as what impact a change in your mentality, like you're presenting, uh, provides for all these other systems of government that have to spend a significant amount of money on law enforcement and on, uh, you know, the court system and all that. Like, is there, is there just all of a sudden a, a magic switch that we fix a bunch of stuff on one part of the, of the life <laughs> cycle of, of a human being. And all of a sudden there's just not as much need for something else on the other. Or how does that, what does that look like? Remember old school stuff that you would have to warm up before it started working? Say that one more time. Remember, you know, uh, a lot of a lot of stuff, uh, old, older made stuff. You, oh, yeah. You couldn't yeah. just switch switch it on and it was working automatically. Yeah, you would yeah, have so to say, well, I, well, let's warm the car up. You ever remember yeah. warming the car up? Yeah, absolutely. We don't warm the car up anymore. Um, we just, you know. That's carburetors uh, versus fuel injection, but neither here nor there. Right, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, I, I understand. Trust me. I understand it. Um, yeah, but I... I always remember that as a kid. It's like, okay, go go warm the car up, and you go turn the car on, and have to let it run for like thirty minutes yeah. before it's usable. You know, I always see like getting into a state's attorney's office. Um, the the switch is the mentality. Yeah. So, understand that you can't keep letting. Uh, the same thing happen over and over again, expect different results, right? That when you're bailing water, meaning you're taking reports in and you're filing reports and you're sending people where they need to go, whether it's incarceration or probation or wherever, um, that when you're doing that, uh, if you're not, that's just just bailing water. You'll do that for the rest of your life. You'll do that for 30 years over and over again. And and when you do that, you have to ask yourself, are you doing, you know, are you you getting 30 years experience or are you just getting one year of experience and doing the same thing 
30 years Ooh, in yeah. a row. Ooh, um, yeah, so we can't keep doing the same thing. While we're bailing water, we want to make sure that we're fixing the leak mm -hmm. so water isn't, isn't continuously coming into the, to the boat. I explain it that way because flipping the switch to me is changing the mentality of how we think about crime and how we think about the individual who comes into the, the criminal justice system. Um, you know, make sure that we're treating people the way they need to be treated with dignity, with respect, um, and that their lives are valuable. That because they made a mistake, you know, there's people that need to go to prison. There just are. I've met them. If you, if you don't know them, if you haven't met one, let me know. <laughs> I'll introduce you. They exist. Yeah. Um, but that's few and far between. Most people are good people that made a mistake. Okay, so that so that's an interesting one, right? Because I, you know, I'm I, I myself in the way that I, I think about, uh, you know, crime and and poverty and the intersection of you know all sorts of the wrongs of the world that continue to create more wrongs of the world. What you know, what does somebody who really needs prison look like versus somebody who really does not need prison look right. like? I mean, because we're we're talking about prison is essentially this you know, functional separation from society. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, I, I want to, so real quick on that matter, I think that when you, you flip a switch and you change a mentality mm -hmm. and you change the system about how people think and you get the assistant state's attorneys and the staff to buy in and the judges see what you're trying to do as a state's attorney. Um, and, uh, you start, changing that frame of mind, then you just got to let it warm up and run a little while. Mm -hmm. And hopefully when somebody else comes and replaces you, they're kind of stuck in that new system, right? Yeah. Because now, now that's the way it works, mm -hmm. but it takes somebody to change that and, and warm it up and start getting people to, to think that that's how the system is supposed to work. Yeah. So that's what I hope to do. I hope to flip a switch on the, the mentality um, and not just be punitive, but be try to try to be reformative, restorative, yeah. um, and try to give individuals um, uh, the benefit of the doubt. Um, and, and in your question about what does that look like, well, it's it's kind of like the definition um, that that we talked about in, in in law school of pornography. You just know it when you see it, right? Mm -hmm. Um, and that's why it's important to know the social history of of, uh, of the person before you allow a plea. Mm -hmm. or before you, you go to trial, or even before you charge. Um, it's so important to have that picture that I mentioned painted for you so you know what you're doing before you do it. Mm -hmm. um, but you know them when you see it. You, I, I want to say that you've exhausted um, the, uh, the possibilities and, uh, from community-based groups. Yeah. And when you exhaust those and you can't do anything else, or when the community is in danger... Yeah. When you when you can't, you know, say to yourself that the community will be safe if this person is out again. Yeah. Um, if you can't say that, then you have to do whatever you can to make sure that the community is safe. That there's no question about that. And and me and and any other person running for a state's attorney, we would all agree on it. I think it'd be a hundred, uh, you know, a hundred out of a hundred, we would all say that if someone's dangerous, we keep them off the street. That's a no-brainer. Where differences lie is what we do with the other 99% yeah. of the people that come into the system and how active are we outside of the office for the juvenile docket. Um, so th those are my two points that I think need to be fixed. I think we all agree on who's dangerous. Yeah. So, I mean, so is, I mean, is that really kind of the primer is like violent acts and, you know, the, the likelihood of continuing to, uh, you know, participate in violent acts. I mean, that really defines... So, so there's two models that I noticed from state's attorneys, and one of them is the most dominant one or predominant one, and that is uh, three questions that we ask when someone's arrested. Was the law broken? Who broke it? And what should the punishment be? That who broke it one sounds a little iffy, <laughs> right? right? Like, right. The, the who, like if we're looking for a flaw in the system, I think question number two there There's, of like who broke it, you know, that but. that is a that is a pu uh, a punitive model, right? So, um, you know, was a law broken? Who broke it? And what should the punishment be? Yeah. And that gets very subjective as far as what the punishment should be. Um, if you go from one county to the other, it could be different. Like, well, you know, they, they did this, and so this is usually the sentence when somebody does this. Yeah. Um, that doesn't do really anybody good. And that's that, that, that model of asking those three questions hasn't worked for our country for the last 50 years. Yeah. We know that because as crime increases or decreases, 
our prison population maintains a steady increase almost always. Mm -hmm. um, and that just means that we're not making the right decisions. The questions that I want to ask, and this is what I mean by changing the way we think in the office, mm -hmm. um, is, is there a victim? Who is the victim? And how can we restore the victim back to how they were before? If we do that, we do a few things. One, we put the victim at the center of the criminal justice system as opposed to the defendant. Mm -hmm. um, I think that's deserving because ultimately what we're trying to do is, re is, is um, what some people would say punish, but yeah. what we're trying to do is keep the community safe and do yeah. justice. So um, I, I think if we, if we do that, we're keeping the victim at the center, yeah. but at the same time, we're allowing the, uh, the defendant um, at some type of redemption, at some type of rehabilitation, some type of restoration, um, because ultimately the community is safer not when they come back from prison and they're a felon and they have nowhere to go. Uh, it's hard for them to get a job. Uh, it's hard for them to, to survive. Um, it's safer when they've learned their lesson and now they're in a, a work program or now they're, 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 they're working and they're, they're contributing to the community. That, that's what we want. We want less felons in the community mm -hmm. and we want more people that are, that are contributing to the community. And I think when we ask those questions, we do a better job of it. So that, uh, that, that's, yeah. I mean, a, a, a different way of looking at it indeed. I mean, you know, that, that if we pivot a system wholly on the person that's committed an act related to the words that we've put on text and then, you know, stamped as a, as a society and called it law versus who is the person really affected when a law is broken? Yeah. The idea is that justice is only as, as good or bad as the act that we are calling unjust, you know? Um, so uh, it's kind of, a, it's funny, we learned it, no harm, no foul back in the day, but we want to make sure that going forward, they're not, they're not a problem to the community. Um, we do that by installing uh, and implementing a bunch of different programs um, that help people um, and helps us identify the underlying problems of crime. That's so important. And in, in that victim model that I told you about who the victim is and mm -hmm. what happened and, and how can we fix it, um, we, we need to be able to have programs to divert people from the criminal justice system um, and get them back on track. That's, I, that's, that's so important uh, because we're looking at a very small slice of the pie of people who are violent offenders and need to go to prison. Um, there's all the rest of, of the cases. Um, you don't just dismiss them because they're no big deal. We want to make sure they never happen again. Mm -hmm. I, always, you know, I, I have so many examples as a defense attorney that I wouldn't have as a prosecutor. You know, one... Um, one recently is that I have ran into somebody who was convicted of possession of methamphetamine. Mm -hmm. And it was the first time ever, and she was given probation for a couple years, for 24 months, and finished her probation. And by the way, was only tested a handful of times in 24 months. And two weeks after she finished her probation, she was picked up on a possession of methamphetamine charge. Again, and uh, she was arrested, she bonded out, and it was 60 days until her first appearance. So our community has somebody who's walking around, doing whatever she would do, um, who has an addiction, has a disease, according to the American Medical Association, mm -hmm. right? Substance mm -hmm. abuse disorder, uh, and she has no help, right? So the court system found her once, and didn't intervene, didn't divert her from the system, didn't help her rehabilitate. Instead, we put her in probation, which tracked her. Let's be honest. They're, they're a department that's not set up to rehabilitate. They're set up to track, yeah. which, by the way, 17% of our incarceration population in Illinois are from technical violations of like probation. probation. Yeah. So nearly one in five. Yeah. Wow. Um, okay. And so... We bring her in a second time and say, oh, possession of methamphetamine. And I guarantee you the report says that they pulled her over, uh, they talked to her, they noticed that her license was suspended, they searched her, found methamphetamine, and then that's the end of the report. 
Um, the prosecutor at that time when she was arrested doesn't know about probably at that time her previous methamphetamine uh, issue. And we didn't identify her as someone with an addiction. And so we kick her back out on the street for 60 days. What does somebody who's drug abused do? What do they do for 60 days? Yeah. Well, they, especially when you're in a stressful situation. They, they use drugs again. And sometimes, I'm not saying her, but if you're talking about small-time property crimes trespass, criminal trespass, uh, theft from, from retail stores. That's when these, that's the window when these things happen. Mm -hmm. Right. And we don't have an adequate program to divert her right now in Jackson County. There's just not. And people will tell you, well, there's, we can get her treatment. That's usually done right now in the system way down the road. Mm -hmm. Defense attorney has to sometimes ask for that. Or uh, we do that as a, as a measure after sentencing or as sentencing, I mean. We don't do that while she's going through the system. When is That's when she needs it right now. Mm -hmm. um, so identifying that problem as soon as she's arrested and getting her an evaluation immediately before she's released or, or upon release, so important. To have her in rehabilitation right now, so important. You know, so that she doesn't reoffend, or uh, the people in the community don't see her coming back to their property. You know, breaking into a car, uh, you know, trespassing on property. These little crimes that sometimes people don't take seriously. But if you're that person that lives in that community, yeah. you don't want that happening in your neighborhood. You know, so the system's broken. It's not just in Jackson County. It's everywhere. Um, well, I can't say everywhere, but it's across the country for sure. Yeah. There's prosecutor's offices right now that need to change how we look at substance abuse disorder. We need to change how we look at poverty, and we need to change how we look at mental health illness. The system's not set up to identify these problems upon arrest, uh, and the system's not meant to help people while they're going through the process. It's really set up to help people afterward. Um, but drug courts do that. Treatment courts do that. Family treatment courts do that. Juvenile diversion programs do that. Informal uh, juvenile diversion programs do that. That's before we charge kids with mm -hmm. crimes. Um, all those programs are set up to get people, identify the problem right away, get them help before we start making decisions that are going to impact the community for the rest of, the, uh, of, of that person's life and for a long time in the community. Every decision that we make in the state attorney's office disrupts the community. And I think prosecutors, it's about time that they realize that. It's very difficult to continue to remember that your decision disrupts so many issues in the community. Mm -hmm. Suspending someone's driver's license. You're talking about a traffic court. It's just kind of a joke. Oh, you become a prosecutor, you're stuck in traffic court. you got to work your way up through traffic court. Um, that has huge ramifications on people in our community. Mm -hmm. They're 17, 18 years old with a bad driving record and no credit, and we expect these people to thrive and be successful in our community when we're not helping them. Prosecutors need to start making sure that they understand that their decisions impact the community. Mm -hmm. So. No, I mean, it's, I've seen it. You know, arguably, we've all got friends, family, acquaintances, somewhere somebody has broken a law and we know them and they've gone to prison. It's not like some, you know, we live in a bubble and everybody's, you know, there's this group of people over here that it's just criminal life and they live there and they're the ones that have to deal with the court system and then everybody else over here just lives, you know, behind this, you know, golden fence. Yeah. Like, I don't, do you have friends that have like you've seen not as an attorney but like as a person have to hit the system and be like damn that happened to so and so yeah yeah too too uh too often you know um i i've been acquainted with people that have made it and i've been acquainted with people that haven't and uh, i know people that are my age and, and maybe a little older that have been in constant contact with the criminal justice system constant um so it's a problem because I, I honestly do believe that every life is valuable. We just have to be able to – some people need more support in other areas than others. It's simple as that. And, it, and I always find that the community resources are often there. We just don't utilize them to their fullest. You know, mm -hmm. There's a lot of faith leaders in the community that, that would love to help, that if you picked up the phone, they would get a, a van to help somebody get somewhere. There's, yeah. there's community-based organizations like the Warming Center that I was able to walk around the other day. There's people that volunteer their time to do amazing things to help yeah. Others, uh, you know, Good Samaritan and, and other areas. There's a brand new rehabilitation center that opened up in Carbondale that I was able to be at the ribbon cutting for called Recover Us. Um, and there's a number of, of other ones. And um, we need to make sure that we have them on speed dial. 
and that they know that as a state's attorney, I want to make sure that they are involved in the system, that if they want to help, I'm going to say, oh, yeah, you want to help? All right. Well, I got something for you. Uh, <laughs> help help with this. <laughs> you're asking for it. You're, you're going to get it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, and then I think it's also important to bring other community resources in and, and work outside of the courthouse as a leader in, in, the, in the county. Make sure that we get as many community-based uh, resources that we have, um, and also grants. You know, we we don't use grants enough. Um, there's an actual office of uh, of programs at the Department of Justice. They have 370 some odd programs, many of them for juveniles, wow. and grants available for each one. Needs assessments that can be done for each one, and we don't utilize any of those. Well, I mean, I guess, and on on the other side of that, right? Like, we've got a bunch of police departments that are local, right? I know at least here in Carbondale, right? Uh, outgoing. Chief Jeff Grubbs was like deeply ingrained in activity at Quantico, like working with the FBI to sharpen whatever, uh, you know, law enforcement skills the FBI, you know, imparts on, uh, you know, local law enforcement officials. But it's like, okay, well, there are 370 some odd programs related to <laughs> this that is may not be necessarily the tactics and policing, but, you know, where, where, where are we drawing on those you know, pools of, of, of activity from at the, at the federal level. Yeah, we, we just, we don't. And I think with the median income in, in, in Jackson County and with the level of poverty, joblessness, uh, I think that uh, you'd be surprised how much we would qualify for. Um, I found grants, just basic Google searches, finding grants that mm -hmm. were unapplied for, hundreds of thousands of dollars in programs that we don't utilize. You know, Williamson County actually has four victim advocates that are on grant funding. Mm -hmm. um, one of them is the juvenile victim advocate. There's an assistant juvenile victim advocate. There's a victim advocate and there's a domestic violence victim advocate. Imagine if I came to your job and gave you four employees full time. And just, here you go. <laughs> yeah. Do a better job. Right. Here's resources to do. Right. So. Imagine the type of resources, the type of uh, type of things that we could do for victims if we had additional workers. So I'm not saying that those are available for Jackson County on day one, but I, I am saying that there will be a grant writer. Yeah. Well, and, I mean, and you're you're always you're always looking for right. How how do I alleviate the the pressure on X organization, X institution, et cetera, et cetera. How do I make it easier for the cops? How do I make it easier for the women's center? How do I make it easier for the warming center to just do their jobs? of filling in the gaps in places or, you know, again, I, you know, I'm, I will argue about it all day long about how we put too much onus on our police officers to do a bunch of shit that, you know, training with a gun doesn't, <laughs> doesn't yeah. get them there uh, for, right? And it's like, okay, cool. How many, how many more things can you ask a cop to do? Right. Right. How much more stuff? I, I, I think of the, the, the cartoon that's floated around on the internet for several months that's like, you know, talking about defunding the police. Well, what, you know, defund the police sounds scary, but then, okay, well, what, what is it really? Oh, well, we're talking about taking eight different activities out of the realm of officers and letting them just patrol and look for proper crime and stop proper crime or, or investigate proper crime versus having to deal with somebody having a mental health breakdown yeah. outside of, you know, on the street somewhere. Right. Yeah. I, I, uh, I think it's it's been um, it's been a fine line walking because you know police officers have been have come on a, under a lot of scrutiny, uh, and I I empathize with them because you know as as an infantry guy in uh, in Iraq we've done a lot of policing actions. Their jobs are are dangerous. You know, imagine how you know if you've ever been stopped or involved in an incident with police you imagine the anxiety and the stress that causes now imagine if you're on the other side and you did you know eight or or ten of those stops a night um they have a tough job you know make no mistake about it uh and we've only piled more and more things on top of them mm -hmm. um and that's because we haven't adequately responded to the needs of the community um and we haven't realized that there are underlying reasons for crime um, I, I think that some of the solution right away is to look at how, look at corrections and our jails a little yeah. bit different than what we look at them now. Um, you know, maybe it, it, it's a far cry to have a social worker in a car go out to a home 
um, which we do, by the way, for DCFS and a couple other organizations. But So there is like a format for this. There is a format. But yeah. uh, imagine having, um, instead of, instead of uh, you know, 10 jailers, nine jailers and a social worker that mm -hmm. can evaluate and identify problems yeah. at the jail, um, having that person on call all the time at the jail so that on day one of the arrest, we've had that person evaluated and included in a report is a, an evaluation, um, not to be used against them in court, but so that the prosecutor can start looking at possible avenues for diversion and, and treatment and, and whatever else. And they may end up being prosecuted. Um, but what about being prosecuted and also getting help so they're better the second time? You know, um, so I, I think we need to, we're so binary in our culture, aren't we? That it, it's good or bad. Uh, you know, up or down. You, we, you, you, we, wanna, you wanna talk about binary culture. We, I'm sorry to cut you off, but this is this cracked me up. I drove through Virgin's the other day. And I was surprised to see a Biden Harris sign smack dab in the middle of Virgin's. And whose sign was next to it but Joe Cervantes. <laughs> is that right? And you drive a little bit further down the road, and there's a Trump sign in the ground. And I'll be darned about whose sign is next to that Trump sign. <laughs> and it's yours, too. Say it ain't so. Oh, man. I just, it, it cracks me. It's, it's interesting to see in this, in this day and age, right, that uh, there, is, there is still some way to break through. There is, the, yeah. The, the duopoly of thought yeah. uh, that, that we experience here and, and to have... To have seen that was just—I mean, that's—that was one of the things that kind of, you know, I thought about. Okay, well, where do I want to go next with with interviews? How do I want to broaden it so you know it's not just people that that think like me that are on my side of the political spectrum and and kind of a couple more qualifiers here. And then when I saw that earlier this week, I was just like, yep, yeah. If we're if we're really launching this, I'm like. Kind of try and get Joe on this show and that, just you know, let him talk. That that's exactly. I'm glad you you said that because I, I, I we we're, we are really binary and and to the point of uh, of law enforcement and their roles, um, we either think that the police have to be completely gone, or we have to have a militarization of the police department because yeah. crime is so bad. You know that that's right now Republican and Democrat, you yeah. know, they want to defund or they want to militarize. Mm -hmm. um, there's so many solutions in between. It's not even funny. And when I talk to people door to door, no matter where I am, you know, a lot of people agree. I've sat down, you know, in people's living rooms and talked to them about that. People think that having a social worker or some kind of drug counselor at the jail all the time is a good route to, to explore, you know, um, we already funded to have a jail. We already have payroll. Yeah. We already have an infrastructure for them. And we know that we have to identify problems early or else, you know, one of the big problems the community, uh, the community has is they say, well, is this catch and release, this revolving door? Mm -hmm. They get arrested on, on Friday night. They're back out on Sunday night or Saturday night, and they're doing the same thing again. Um, well, you know, having somebody in the jail, it's not, it's not defunding the police. But it's identifying problems. It's 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 not having the police do things that they're not supposed to have. Yeah. So there's solutions that are that are in between that everybody lives with. Uh, but I think going down the road, um, we're going to have to have jails be more, um, I, I guess, diverse uh, as far as who's working there and what kind of services that we can we can offer them. Um, but as far as the signs, hey, I have no. I, I, that just happened. I didn't, <laughs> yeah, I didn't, yeah, no, I didn't. no. I mean, your your signs go out. They end up in people's <laughs> yards, and, and they end up in all types of people's yards. Well, I've never, I've because I've never had anybody disagree and say, you know, we we don't want safer communities. I've never yeah. had anyone disagree and say that, you know, we shouldn't concentrate or focus on on our youth and and juvenile dockets. Yep. I've never had anybody disagree with me, you know, when they say that when somebody's a victim, they should be supported. That we should have all the services we need for them to get them back yep. um, and, and get them some closure. So, you know, the things that I, I'm dealing with in my campaign, they're not red or blue issues. They're just just right or wrong, you know. So. Well, then there there are so many people out there that, uh, it, you know, it it's they are just interested in preserving just a little bit of safety and sanity in their own world. Now, granted, you know, their positions may be ones that we critique a little bit more heavily because they don't live in play, you know, in a in a way that is 
attacking their safety or sanity, right? Think about somebody living in a in a suburban space versus somebody living in uh, you know a more a more impoverished space, right? Um, that they don't necessarily just want punishment for punishment's sake. They want punishment because they think that punishment is the thing that's going to keep them safe. Right. And that's not necessarily the case. And no. we gotta make that they gotta make that pivot. One more one more thing I want to talk about while we wind down on, on my give or take hour hour here. That's kind of where I'm wanting to keep uh, keep these at. I have found that we were able to get through a lot of good content in an hour but not go too crazy and then we all get to go about our day. Um, you've been doing some some stuff with the library, right? Like you've been lawyering in the library. Oh yeah. yeah. <laughs> how did that how did that come about? Like what where did where did that all grow from? So um, I know my, my, the administrative um, professionals in my office that I employ, um, my assistants, they're going to be cheering for me when I tell them this. But they yell at me all the time because I have a really bad habit of taking pro bono cases. Uh-huh. And it's a bad habit if you have a business. <laughs> it's a great habit if you're just a human, a good person. <laughs> I love to take good cases and help people out that, that, that need help, that have nowhere else to go, uh, or that I know that I can help them mm-hmm. uh, and, and, and do it well. So I have a habit of of taking these cases. I'm known for helping out uh, veterans in the community with legal issues. I'm known for um, taking cases at, and I call them low bono cases because sometimes they pay me, but not what, you know, you would normally pay an attorney. Um, And I think uh, people realize that. uh, And I think just somebody asked me if I'd be interested in doing that. I kind of had a reputation for helping people out when I could as an attorney. Um, And, uh, and so my secretaries always have to remind me. They're always like, Joe, <laughs> <laughs> we have bills that we have to pay in our office. I'm like, I know, it'll be fine. It'll be, it'll be fine. Um, but uh, Lawyer in the Library was just like a natural transition for me. It gave me a, uh, an opportunity to do what I do, uh, and that is uh, try to give legal advice um, at something at a, at a, you know, without having to people to break the bank to try to hire an attorney a lot of times people don't need to hire an attorney they just need to know where to go um and a lot of times they don't need an attorney at all they just need um uh i guess some reassurance that they're doing the right thing or that everything's going to be okay Mm -hmm. uh lawyer in the library is great for two reasons one it allows people to be able to just double check and see before they go and make that appointment and spend the money on an attorney whether they need one in the first place or they can do it themselves Mm -hmm. that's the primary purpose i think Um, the second is that it supports the library that's the second reason why I do that. Um, library. Do they, get, do they get grant funding for what? The, I believe some. I, there's learning the library programs throughout Southern Illinois now. I believe some okay. of them do and some of them don't. Okay. Um, but uh, the role of the library has changed uh, drastically mm-hmm. over the last so many, uh, maybe the last decade or two. And um, the libraries, I think, have struggled to make sure that they're relevant. It sounds horrible, but Mm -hmm. in this age of computer information, um, I think they're fighting to to find their place. And I think Carbondale Library has done a really good job doing that, and a lot of other libraries are are following. Um, But there's so much more that they've been doing that they traditionally haven't done. Uh, And I think it's important to support the libraries and make sure that we still have a place to go to uh, to, so, yeah. so I, again, not to cut you off, I, I just I keep getting the, the thought spur in my head, and I was like trying to trying to think about okay, well, what's a what is a what is a format for you know jail reformation that that is out there and can be modeled, and it's almost kind of like the library, like what what has changed in the world of libraries and becoming a space for social work and community development and like addressing problems and issues, not just a place where you go check out a book and research yeah. and read. Like, yeah. what what do you see as like some some changes that have occurred in, in the world of libraries that you think are applicable in, in jail spaces? 
That that's interesting. I, I think it's um, it's exactly what you just said. I mean, you answered you answered that. I mean, that, uh, in your question. Sorry, I was too little little too leading. Just to... that, that that's right. I, I absolutely and and I think that's that's one of the reasons why I love what they're doing. Um, I think the the jail system, the criminal justice system, needs to do the same thing and find out what their role is as we evolve as a community, as a country. Um, and libraries are doing that right now. So I was excited to help them out. Actually, um, I think that they should provide services like that and going forward they're going to have to so awesome awesome well, i appreciate the time joe this has been a uh, an, an enjoyable conversation something that uh i had no expectations set up for but you have you've done it, this has been just an, an eye opener right on, on a lot of things. And I hope that the people that watch this kind of see it as such. Yeah. And I, and I appreciate it. And I, I know I, I stray sometimes as I, I like to talk about what I do. The podcast's all about straying. Yeah. Well, <laughs> I, I'm, then I'm your man for the job because I, I can get off on a tangent, but, um, you know, ultimately I just want to do, um, my part. And I think my part now with all the things that I've gone through, uh, in my life, the mistakes, and there's a lot of them, um, and working on both sides of the courtroom, uh, this is the next step. I think, this is where I can do my uh, my thing in this community. My contribution uh, is in that state's attorney's office. Um, so I appreciate the time. Any platform uh, that we can give anybody that's interested in helping the community, I think that's important because platforms are hard to find nowadays. Well, and and at, so. the, at the end of the day, you know, win, lose, or draw, um, to get out there and say the things, right, is that if you lose, if you win, having just said what you've said, to so many people and make the want for change occur at a very individual level throughout whatever space you're trying to represent, I think is, is worth the work that you've done and the effort that you put in thus far. So I appreciate it. Thank you for that. Uh, and that is episode number three. Um, we're going to keep expanding with all the interesting folks that we can find talking to them about all the interesting things that we do and tying it right back to our little lovely hometown of Carbondale. Have a good one, y'all.